This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 150. What, what? We're recording on Thursday, March 24th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I am back. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca's back. Uh, we missed her, and we're glad to have you back from your from your southern, hemis- southern hemispheric sojourn. Yes, thank you. I'm, I, you know, kind of missed you guys. Yeah, sure, I understand. <laughs> Not too much. You're like, Not too you're much. like driving around. You're like swimming in caves. You're pretending to be a hobbit. You're seeing glowworms. You're jumping off stuff. I mean, that's pretty busy time. It was, it was pretty good. You know, I didn't read a single book the whole time. It really? Was a little, yeah, I started. Not even on the plane? Well, no, on the plane I oh, did. Okay. Um, but I started, and on the way there, I started The Regional Office is Under Attack by oh, Manuel uh-huh. Gonzalez, which is coming out from Riverhead, I think, next month. Um, and then I finished it on the plane ride home, and it was nice. awesome. Um, but I, I was wishing that Warby Parker was sponsoring this episode because I left my Warbies in the little mm. um, pouch pocket in front of me on the flight there and had to buy terrible drugstore reading glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I should have taken a picture. They were hideous uh, to get get me through the trip just for like looking at my phone and doing stuff. Um, but I ordered new Warby Parkers from my, from my phone, from like the, our Auckland hotel room. Uh, and I'm happily reunited. I, I'm guessing our, if we asked our listeners, we could collect a pretty good anthology of horribly awkward things we've done in lieu of having our proper glasses on. Oh my goodness. Yes. Cause I, I, I you know, I'm not going to tell stories on myself now because you know, I'm not that drunk yet. Uh, but I've done some weird stuff to like try to see, yeah, well, you only right. need yours for reading, though, right? Yeah, I only wear mine for reading and for looking at the computer. So I basically live in them. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> only reading and looking computer, which I, you never do those two things at all. Right, and then I forget that they're on my face, and I get up to walk around the house, and all my depth perception is screwed <laughs> up, and I, like, run into walls, and I tried to cook while I was wearing them once. What supervillain has enchanted me? Oh, wait, my, <laughs> right. oh, my glasses. <laughs> right. My hand, what do I do with my eye hands? <laughs> what do I do with my eye hands? Who moved my house around? That's not where those walls go. <laughs> right. Well, that wall is a lot closer than it looks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I am, well, well we're glad swing. to have you back. Well, you know, one thing you don't need your eyeglasses for. Ah, uh, I see where you're going. Yeah, we, our first sponsor, Audible. We'll get we'll get them we'll get them cooking here. Audible, as you know, the go-to solution for audiobooks. Basically, if you like audiobooks and you do audiobooks, this is the be- the best place to go because they have it all. Over 180,000 titles from leading audiobook publishers. And not just books, but also broadcasts, magazines, entertainers have shows there, magazines, newspaper subscriptions, and other business uh, information providers. You know that if you have a modern device that can like get on the internet, basically, at this point, you can use Audible. You can get a free app, download and listen to whatever uh, device you have at this point. You get to keep these, you get to keep the files. So unlike some other streaming or rental services, if you unsubscribe, you still have access. You have to, you use the app to access them, but they're there for as long as Audible is around, um, which b- based on the numbers year over year, audiobooks are going to be around and stronger for a long time mm-hmm. to go. Um, up 37% year over year, I saw uh, this week. Anyway, 
Man, those just keep going. Also, a great listen guarantee, which I used this week, uh, which, you know, I, I picked something out from Michelle and I was like, eh, I don't think that's the right thing. So I, I hit the great listen thing and I returned it immediately right there um, because, you know, Audible knows that audiobooks are, in a way, m- more intimate than just reading a book and there's that extra wild card of the narration. And sometimes it just doesn't hit you the right way. And, uh, you know, they don't want you to be out your subscription or your dollars for that particular title. Um, they want you to be happy. So they have that guarantee. I used that this week, too. Did you? That's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, before we talk about audiobooks we listened to recently, go to audio, audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite today. No, no. Audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite. <laughs> and you do it today. And yes, you can indeed. start a free trial. Uh, let them know you came from us, and you get your 30-day trial there. Um, I, I listen to, you know, as, as we know, the Busman NBA continues to chug along the line. And I think this week I read easily top 10, maybe top 5. Oh. Uh, uh, listen to um, Originals by Adam Grant. It's a new book that came out a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, and it's about it, – it, there's a lot of uh, creativity hucksterism out there. Um and I, I'm I'm very you know uh, I, I'm very circumspect about listening to too much of it. But Adam Grant himself is an economist, um, and uh, does a, has done a bunch of research on his own, and also looks at a bunch of other research. So it's not just sort of feel good, touchy feely. Here are five things that will help you write your magnum opus. It's looking at studies and um, basically trying to figure out what can help you be more creative in your in your life and how to deal with creative people and your work and at home and everything else like that. So a couple quick, couple quick things I thought was interesting about this. So one thing that um, I'm not, again, I'm not sure if this was one of Grant's own studies or one he's just citing. So I, I apologize about that, but basically they were trying to figure out what is the value of procrastinating? Um, you know, because all, a lot of us who are, who have a trouble procrastinating, want to get rid of it. You know, we're like, ah, I wish I just did this three weeks ago. We all want to be Leslie Nope and get it done three months ahead of time. Um, on the other hand, one thing that the study in the book shows is that actually you come up with more interesting solutions to problems if you start a project or task and then stop it for for a good long time and then start it again. And you and I, and we've, we sort of joke about having shower ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, That's a real thing. The, the, basically, the theory is that you can have shower ideas about a task before you start it. But what will happen is that your you know, background thinking that you, you give all your extra cycles to thinking about this thing is you haven't actually done enough work yet to really be interesting and creative. You're, all, you're, you're writing the first sentence of your – you're naming your band basically before you've started the band. But if you actually start the task a little bit and then pause and then resume it, um, the studies show that the results are, are quite a bit more interesting. And they, and they suggest you know, doing the first, I think, 20% of the task if it's something you can measure the percentage of. And then, and then pausing for a day, two days, you know, as long as you can, really, and then resuming it because your brain is going to spend a lot of time, even when you're not aware of it, like when you're sleeping and stuff, working on the project and figuring it out. So I thought that's, that's, a, that's a, just a, that's a kind of thing you're going to find out here. Um, I love it when science validates a thing I'm already yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, because for me, I don't actually start and then stop. I always am like, oh, I'm, I'm not actually doing it. I'm thinking about it. So I'm kind of working. So it's kind of like a, you know, a hack on my uh, procrastinating hedge, really. Mm. Um, another one, just real quick, that's interesting, too, I thought, is starting from a more unusual place, if you're trying to be creative, usually is better than starting from a more familiar place. And that, that sounds obvious, but the example they gave is they were they charged a bunch of students with coming up with a sort of graduation gift 
you know, create a new graduation gift for people graduating from high school. And in one, in one set of groups, they gave them a pen. And in another set of groups, they started with uh, a pair of rollerblades. Hmm. And, you know, you would think the pen, while they're graduates or going to college, that will be more, you know, that'll be more appropriate. Well, it came up with a bunch of varieties of pens because it's already so close to the kind of thing you might give someone. Whereas if you come at it from the roller skate angle, you've got to work through a whole bunch of steps to try to get back to it. And all those working through of steps and possibilities is, you know, a way to come up with more creative um, ideas. So anyway, and, and as we all know, the best way to come up with good ideas is to come up with a bunch of bad ideas. That That's one that we've definitely found to be true, but that's, oh that's validated by this. So anyway... This I, I'm really I, I really love the book and uh, I actually tweeted a recommendation for it the other day which as you know I don't do very often. No, it's um, usually a big mystery what it, Jeff's reading yeah, except or, for these Busman's MBA things. Yeah, and so and I said you know I loved it and you know if you work in a vaguely creative field or you're working you know you're you're interested in creativity even in the abstract I thought it was super good it's engaging I had read his his first book Give and Take which is about reciprocity styles givers takers and matches is also very interesting but originals. Um, really an interesting book. Uh, so anyway, I highly recommend it. It's not too long, but it's you know it's it's a uh, it, it's a good uh, it's a good uh, dive into this stuff. So anyway, that's that's my pick for an audiobook. Yeah, that's the one I just downloaded because I'd kind of had my eye on it, and then when we started talking about mm-hmm. it, and you recommended, it, I was like, okay. Hey, have you read uh, or heard about anything about Charles Duhigg's new book? Sorry, we're, we're off. Of oh, side. smarter, faster, better. Yes, yes, I yes, I really dug it. Oh, but, you did. Like, I'm you know super primed. <laughs> no, to no, I know. Really like we, we are dig. primed to like it. I think that's my next yeah, audio after the, the one I'm doing right now. I thought it was great. It's the science of productivity, and he reframes like productivity is not just efficiency. It's not right. just doing the things you have to do faster but doing more things well. Mm-hmm. And it looks at how we identify problems, how we make plans for stuff, how we make teams and like how you break out who's going to do what and then how you're going to do your own things. So as an employee and a boss, I found it really useful mm-hmm. um, for and for for both personal and work kinds of problem solving and productivity and getting general gettingness of stuff done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked it. I just but you know, I yep. love him. Okay, I, that, I think that's my next uh audiobook as well. Okay, let's do some news. We got news. news, news. Where, do you want to st- where do you want to start here? I got We got to talk about, okay, weird, let's start with weird stories because I have missed. Yeah, you, you missed the weird stories. To talk about weird stories. Can we talk, can we start with Jimmy Pat? Yeah, J-Pat is back. Um, he's sort of a one-man mansplaining force to the publishing industry. <laughs> it's, oh, you know, we had a moment of benevolence for James Patterson. Well, I, I, yeah. Or we've yes. had many. Right. We've had many moments of like, he's doing a cool thing and he's giving money to booksellers mm-hmm. and, you know, like awesome stuff. This, this does just man, it feels like epic mansplaining and also <laughs> weird solving of problems. Like the, so what, here's what he's doing. Yes. He is after, basically, I'm calling this the plan to bring back prodigal readers. Mm -hmm. He wants to sell books to people who have given up reading in favor of TV, video games, movies, and the internet, essentially. And his plan for doing that is to make books that are shorter, cheaper, more plot-driven, and more widely available. These details are from a piece in the New York Times. Uh, So he's got a new line, basically a new imprint, coming out under Hachette called Bookshots. And they are short novels that are going to cost less than five bucks. It says they can be read in a single sitting. 
He's going to write some of them himself, write some with other people, and handpick the rest. Um, the idea is that all of them will be under 150 pages, which I don't know how many people who have given up reading are going to read 150 pages in a single sitting. Mm. I rarely read 150 pages yeah, in for, a single sitting. Even at my clip, that's still a couple hours. Yeah. Um, um, Patterson said the books are aimed at readers who might not want to invest their time in a three or 400 page novel. Um, and he wants to you know, make them like reading movies basically, and also to get them sold at uh, the kinds of venues that would have sold Pulp Fiction back in the day, like to stock these at the checkout aisles of drugstores and grocery stores uh -huh. and try to prey on that. They're going to do 21 of them Wow! this year. I just am very... I don't know how you bring somebody back who's given up reading by making them read. Like, this is a book and it's bookier than other books. But well, it's less booky, but... So, the I mean, you can sort of see the premise based on what his solution is, right? So his idea right. is that to make them shorter, cheaper, and more plot-driven means he thinks that books now are too long, mm -hmm. too expensive, and not plotty enough, right? But it's not like his books aren't 400-page... Well, yeah. Like, his books are 400-plus page hardcover thrillers that make his publisher a lot of money. No, no, no. I'm just saying for, for this particular audience. He's yeah, saying yeah. If, we could, if we could make shorter, cheaper, and I guess more propulsive books, then maybe more people would read them. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. I, I guess. I, basically, I mean, he's sort of saying people were abandoned reading for television, video games, movies, and social media. Like, if I'm going to spend two hours on something and I want it to be more like a movie, why don't I just watch a movie? Like, why am I picking up this book right. now? Right? Like, okay, I've got two hours and I want something that's more visceral. Why don't I rent a movie on iTunes and watch it on my phone? Like, yeah, I, I guess it just feels like you're competing. Like, you, you don't fight with movies on what movies do well. Like, that doesn't right, make any sense to me. And we've talked about the numbers, like of you know, average books read per year by the average American yeah. in the pre-internet and post-internet days. And the I wish that we had the actual stats in front of us right yeah. now. But the decline is not actually that startling. It's something mm -hmm. that we've both said on air we can live with that it, like actually does not seem as bad as one might expect from the yeah, way that everybody from the, from talks. The, from the hydrogen bomb that is the internet to our attention. Right. Yeah. And I just don't know where these where the supposed customers for this thing actually are. I've not yet heard somebody say, oh, I just don't read anymore. But if books were shorter... I would like I get the I think anybody who reads a lot, um, probably everyone who's listening to this show has gotten in some social setting in the last month or two from someone the like, oh, I wish I had time yeah. to read like people perceive it as a squeeze on their time. But I think very few people who have given up reading in favor of all these other forms of tech entertainment would identify like mm -hmm. I gave up reading because I like the Internet so much. It's, I, it, you know, probably more of a falling away in the same way of like, oh, I wish I still had time to go to the gym. Not like mm -hmm. I gave up the gym because I really prefer sitting on my couch. Like it's just a 
a, a, like a gradual evolution of a change in habits. And I just don't know that this is mm-hmm. actually, I'm very skeptical that this is actually a solution. Um, people who read books and would like to try some short ones are going to maybe try these. And they point to the success of cheap and short uh, ebook singles mm-hmm. and the success of digital publishing programs like the Amazon Kindle singles and the Byliner and the Nook Snaps that Barnes & Noble are, are has Are those presented. the successes? I, let, let me press a pause button on well, those. Right, are those successes? Yeah, right. Right. It says, well, they're claiming it. Yeah, Many readers I, I don't have, know. Byliner had to pivot and shut down. I mean, just, just yeah, as one. Like, think, when's the yeah, last time we would talk about their, their great Nook app? Right. Anyway, whatever. Right. I think, you know, especially in genre, the Kindle singles and shorter, mm-hmm. cheaper ebooks do work. But those are also being sold primarily to power readers, people who read a ton. Right. Like it's not like I'm going to read one book this year and I'm going to make it this hundred page novella that James Patterson wrote. Yeah, that's it's it's I mean, maybe I I don't know that there's maybe unconverted readers out there that aren't reading at all. What this might be doing is extending the James Patterson brand down. That That's mm-hmm. kind of my sense of it, because he sells as this New York Times story shows. He's published 156 books that have sold more than 325 million copies worldwide. So. James Patterson himself is not having any trouble <laughs> selling books. So that's what's the odd thing is he sees there's a market for basically what he does, but cheaper and shorter. And he could be right about that. I'm I'm just not sure it's going to convert people who aren't reading. I think it might um, sell down to or sell more through to people who are already reading James Patterson and Daniel Silva and all Daniel yeah. Steele. You know, like, and yes. they, they want something shorter and cheaper. And maybe that will work. Well, um, I think he's going to make – I would guess he's going to make money on this and he will – Oh, don't bet his, against James Patterson making money. Never bet <laughs> right. against that. Uh, and I think you're right that this is about extending his brand and trying to reach people that he's not already getting dollars mm-hmm. from. I think what will actually happen is what you're saying, that he's going to get more dollars and eyeball reading time from readers – that already exist, um, yeah. who either love him and want more of his work, or who are right into thrillers, and they're open to reading some shorter ones, or they would like that in their reading diet, like this could be a successful thing. But I mm-hmm. don't think that it's going to be successful in its stated mission of finding these prodigal readers mm-hmm. that used to read books and have stopped because of technology, um, which is not entirely, but largely kind of a straw man argument yeah, also. Right. Yeah. And bringing them back into the fold, uh, you know, and not to be, you know, too like anti-capitalist about it, but it does look like, well, if I could get people who haven't been reading, how many more books could I sell and how much more mm-hmm. money could I make? If it's really about returning readers to the fold, then why is he writing most of them? Like, why not 21 books and James Patterson writes one and the other well, 20 or by 20 James other Patterson writers? Patterson writing a book is a very well, sort of loose thing. <laughs> that too. Yeah. But, you know, if you're trying to really reach a wide range of people who have fallen out of reading, then maybe one James Patterson book and 20 books by 20 other writers who do different kinds of things so that you have a big net to cast. Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know much about the market for these. And again, I've been following the bestseller list more closely than uh, you know the books again stuff more closely recently than I have before. I mean, the 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 top of the 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 market for selling books are James Patterson like books and James Patterson himself. Like that's they sell the most books, especially in fiction. I would be concerned about cannibalizing those hardcover premium priced books. Like, are you going to get new readers or are you going to give existing readers a 
you know, just enough of a hit of a James mm-hmm. Patterson at four bucks that maybe they're not going to buy the $27 hardback at the airport bookstore on their flight. Maybe they'll get the $5, hundred page. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they've done any research about this. James mm-hmm. Patterson has enough money now. He can just do stuff yeah. and not have to worry. He's not like pitching investors and making a case. Not to say he doesn't have a case. He could be right for all I know. But um, I just wonder how much, uh, have they done any surveys? Have they done, looked at any, are they going to do test programs in bookstores? Like they're saying right. interesting. Did they poll, poll 15,000 people who were like, I would read if books were shorter. Yeah, right. And if it was cheaper. I mean, we do know from eBooks, at least I think we can now infer from the evidence that if you make eBooks cheaper, people will buy more eBooks. Now, that's not the same as people reading them. Right. Um, which, As evidenced by the large backlogs that many of us have. Yeah. Well, you know, I buy daily deals and cheap ebooks, uh-huh. and I have a I have a stack of them there. Um, yep. That, as a TBR zero person, kind of makes me uncomfortable. Though I think of it more like a library. Anyway, I rationalize everything. <laughs> I think of it more like a library. He said while describing his TBR. Yeah. So um, anyway, enough about me and my neuroses. Um, back to James Patterson. Um, so I, I guess that's what I'm not sure. Like some of these things are kind of interesting. Like. Um, Norm, he wants to colonialize, colonize retail chains, problematic word choice here for a moment, mm-hmm. that don't normally sell books like drugstores, grocery stores, and other outlets. Well, the last time I checked, my drugstores and grocery stores do have books. Yeah, by they the all have a book aisle. And they're like six bucks for mass market paperbacks. I guess that's what I understand. If they're $5 and they're 150 pages, isn't a mass market paperback like six ninety nine? Yeah, there's no shortage of six ninety nine James Patterson yeah. mass market paperbacks. Already in my grocery store's book aisle. Um, and and like, maybe he's trying to get like into the checkout aisle. Yeah, for che- the people there are who some. He's also like, you yeah. know, in the grocery store, they have those like strips where there's like bags of like combos or Cheetos hanging from it. Oh, right. He yeah, wants to do impulse. that with books. Like you could just right. pop them off that way right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm very skeptical. I mean, I, I think this is a way of expanding the, the sales of James Patterson like books. I don't I, – the angle that this is going to sort of uh, bring back into the fold a bunch of lapsed um, uh, adherence to, to the written word doesn't seem like it's going to work for me. I, yeah. I'm very curious about it. Like, And as, as hard of a time as we give him – actually, we're not giving him a hard time. We're just sort of critically thinking about it. Like, boy, do I admire the the the, the trying of it. I have, to, I have to say that. I like, tr- well, yeah, I like he, the trying. He, he's not short on uh, ideas. Yeah. I'm – I think I find the framing of this disingenuous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, let's just say James Patterson wants to sell more books, and this is a way to try it, rather than I'm really trying to serve and bring back readers. Like, I, I find myself not quite believing mm-hmm. that that's the real motive here. And this is interesting enough just as an experiment in publishing and trying to sell more books to people who want books that it doesn't require the, like, servicing of the prodigal reader angle mm-hmm. uh, to make it an interesting story. Um, and maybe he really does believe that that's what it's going to do, but yeah, I don't know. Um, so this, uh, they, they, the Alexander, Alexander Alter, who's like sort of the beat writer for the times in the publishing mm-hmm. industry links to a Pew, Pew research, um, study, which we've talked about before, talk about the percent of Americans who read at least one book in whole or in part in the previous 12 months in 2015, that was, um, 72%. And that's down 79%. It's kind of bumpy. 79% in 2011, 74 in 2012, 76 in 2014. So it's hovering in that 72. It's around 75 if you took the median. Um, so, I mean, say what you will. Like, 
are you what percent of those 28% even can read at a grade level you know what 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 percentage of the market are we really talking about that aren't reading at least one book a year right and the deeper data there is that the average american read 12 books in right. the last 12 months yeah. so the 72% or you know hovering around 75% who are reading are not on average reading one book. Mm-hmm. Um, t- 12 is pretty respectable. That's a book a month. And if you're a busy person and you're just trying to get to your book club selection and you don't get paid to read books and think mm-hmm. about them uh, all day, I think that's a really good rate. And I'm actually hard pressed to think of people in my personal life that are reading that much. 12 12 a year just, yeah. it, uh, is not a bad rate. Um, and sure, like the, for all of the people that are reading zero or one that pull that average down, there are the us's and the liberties yes, right. in the world that are reading a lot and are d- dragging it back up. But I just can't be terribly worried if 75-ish percent of people are reading and the uh, on average they're reading a book a month. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah, I'm just not terribly concerned and, about and, the health and of they look, Maybe we should do a post reading. about this, like really break this down, like what percentage of the what percentage of that percent, that 20% of Americans that didn't read a book last year are like convertible? It's kind of like in an election, like the independents, like the swing voters. How many of them mm-hmm. are there really? Let's, you know, English speaking people that can't read, adults that cannot read at like a third grade level, then that, the numbers right. would shock you. And that doesn't get into the, the number of people who are fluent in languages other than English that right. there aren't a, a lot of books for. So, I mean, I wonder what percentage we're actually wringing our hands about. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, this is one of those things that feels like it taps more into a narrative than a reality. Like, yes, yes fewer people are reading a book a year. But uh, is it a crisis? Is it, you know, something that there's, you know, if we come, if we swoop in with a um, hundred page plot driven novellas for four bucks and they read them, are, do we call that a win for, I guess, I mean, I guess that's the other thing. It's like, What's the minimum viable value we get out of reading? Whatever sort of magical thinking we do about what reading is good for you, I just wonder. Like, what's at what point do we say yes that we we count that? Because like more people are reading words on the internet, right? So right, what's yeah. magic about the book that's hanging like uh, Doritos in the grocery store versus reading an article online? I, I you know I'm, I'm I'm nervous about it. Sure. Well, and it also presumes that narrative piece that we talk about so often that reading is a more important, valuable, edifying, you know, fill in the blank way to spend your time than watching television or playing video games or watching movies or participating in something online. And as much as I love reading, I reject that idea. Yeah. Um, Different, not better. You know, it's a different thing, but it's not superior necessarily. Right. Reading books is not necessarily superior to to any of the other Mm -hmm. things that aren't reading books. And so it also feels to me like if this is about bringing the unchurched back to church or bringing, you know, people who have fallen away back into the fold, it assumes that in the fold is a better place to be. Right. Yeah. Like if suddenly James Patterson, you know what, all 28% of those Americans that didn't read a book last year, every single one of them read a book shots last year. Would we be like reading yes. wins? Is that what right. we would Every, say? Like, I'm just not sure about your muscles. that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think so. Yeah, um, it's interesting to me that they're planning to expand bookshots to include nonfiction to focus on short newsy books about current events because, like, that's why we have <laughs> Vox.com. Vox yeah, right. right, that's why Vox exists, yeah. and like the, this Quartz app that 
I can't get enough of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and long reads and long BuzzFeed articles and the Insta internet paper in and general. Talking. Right. If you want to read newsy nonfiction about current events that's well written, there is not a dearth of that mm-hmm. available on the great, big, beautiful internet. Yeah. Uh, so in that way, it, it does feel and like is a person gonna replace their internet nonfiction reading with a bookshot like hmm. how timely can it possibly be news moves so quickly i mean i guess if it's digital but i that's that's not i mean investing in a digital company right now around publishing is not a place i'd necessarily want to be in right now it seems like a pretty mm-hmm. rough and competitive market we found that the challenges in digital are, are sort of like they are in publishing in general they're just different um but there are challenges uh around there. So anyway, I mean, you, you look at the numbers, like it's less than high school, 34% of Amer- people with less than a high school degree, 34% read a book last year. And then you, if they've graduated from high school, it jumps to 61. If, they, if they've had some college, 81, to graduate mm-hmm. from college, 90. So is that, a, is so people not reading, right. is that about the format of books? That doesn't, <laughs> no, that number no, doesn't this... suggest to me that, yeah, we're going to solve book reading by, by making people, uh, by making these books more digestible. Like, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem no, like it's it addressing seems, the right problem. It seems so much like we could, we could get people to come back to church if we just put a guitar on stage. Right. Yes. Something like that. Right. Whereas actually people don't believe in God, you know, like, right. or something like, or something <laughs> like that. I, I, I'm not sure. Right. Like, again, for, to his credit, Patterson has also made, he he clearly himself thinks that reading is in some sort of crisis, and books are in some sort of crisis. Or if crisis is too strong, at least in, could use the support that he can provide. And he has a lot of money because he's looked at libraries and bookstores. So he's come at it from several angles. And, and he's certainly not ungenerous. Certainly not ungenerous. Um, I, I just think... I'd like to get. I'd like to do an interview with him. Don't you think that would be good? Like, I wonder if it he'd, would be he'd agree to sit down and talk about this stuff um, at all. But because he's clearly he clearly cares and he's trying stuff, and I I think the the intent is right. I'm just so curious about his assumptions, mm-hmm. like in like, what what he would see as a, a win, uh, and would that would that resonate with what I think of as a win, and what sort of people who listen to the show and people who think about books in general. Would, would, are we all sort of talking about the same thing? Because it feels like well, some level we're not. And is James Patterson reading the Pew studies and looking at the stats? Or is he just swimming in the water of I this? I don't know. People aren't reading anymore. The internet is evil. I mean, he has enough. He certainly would have data at his disposal. No one sells more books than him um, as an individual. So he, he could be seeing things that maybe even publishers don't have access to, cross-platform stuff and multiple publishers and... Um, price points and a whole bunch of a range of things. He, you know, he's he, he himself is larger than some moderate sized publishers. True. So, I, I would I would be reticent to sort of suggest that he hasn't looked at this. But in the reading I've done about him and his interviews, he he's not sort of a stats guy. He's not a study guy, as far as I can tell. Right, right. He's not dropping the numbers uh, about this thing. Um, that's not to say he's wrong. Uh, not to say he hasn't, but he doesn't talk about it overtly. So anyway, um, you know, and, and this, what's funny is that we have this other story uh, about PRH recording a record profit in 2015. Like, this is the sort of the punch, counterpunch of this narrative that's going on right now, right? Um, I think t- to some degree, we have come out of the, cult, uh, excuse me, North American, um, I'm throwing our, 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 our cousins up in Canada in with mm-hmm. us, I'm so sorry, Canada, um, that, oh my God, books, what's going to happen to... Books are pretty much okay, 
And then you start looking at some of the financial statement from the publishers, and there's some real great successes, it seems like to me. For example, revenue at Penguin and Random House rose 11.8% in 2015 over 2014. Not a thing to sneeze at. Yeah. The publisher's revenue jumped by to 3.7 billion euros, while profits rose 23.2%. Um, the revenue gain was due almost entirely to favorable exchange rates, while the improvement in earnings was attributed to exchange rates and savings achieved through the furniture of Random House and Penguin. So one thing that's happening is the dollar is strong and there's good exchange rates, right? So, um, you know, th th they're doing fine. They're doing fine. Um, sales from continuing operations fell 2.1% in the year. Um, so that's continuing operations, but they don't count new stuff. Federal exchange rates accounted for 12.9% of growth. So, you know, there's the, the economy is good and the publishers are benefiting from it. Um, anyways. And they've, yeah, they've figured out how to correctly balance their income with their expenses yeah. too. Like there have been, as Penguin Random House merged, people did get laid off and positions that were redundant mm -hmm. were eliminated. And I feel like we should call in the bobs from office space while I say yes. all of these phrases. Yeah, right. But that's what they've done. They've cut their expenses in a, in a way also that they can record these kinds of profits. But it does feel like the sky is not falling. Mm -hmm. And every quarter or so when we get these reports and we talk about uh, how numbers are going up almost across the board yep. uh, for the sales of of books, it's very hard then to make a case that there is a, a big problem, that there's a crisis of some kind. Well, there's, a, I guess the other thing that's useful to think about, and I meant to say it when we were talking about the Patterson Bookshots thing, is that there's a problem in publishing, there's a problem in books and reading in the larger culture could be two separate yes. questions. And I think they are two separate questions. Um, Patterson wanting to sell more books is different than getting people to read more. Because what's cheaper than the library? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if you really want to make the cost of accessing books cheaper, then fund more librarians and get more librarians in school. Like, there are other ways to do that. Um, but this is, you know, basically Random House made a lot of money. Some, a lot of it was favorable exchange rates. But there's not a fundamental weakness in their business. Um, also, there wasn't a huge hit last year. I was thinking about this. Um, the big the hit, girl on the train. Yeah, but that's St. Martin's. Um, no, it's not. Oh, I'm sorry, Riverhead. Yeah, that that that's a big hit, but there, it wasn't like we didn't have a, a an elite. You know, we didn't have a Divergent. We didn't have a Fifty Shades. Um, we didn't have you know one of those big, big you know big books that come out. Buried in this publisher's weekly piece, however, is the note that Gray, the E.L. Yes. James novel, sold eight and a half million copies in English, German, and Spanish. Well, okay, that's a big hit. Sorry, I, that you know what? That's right. I, I overlooked that in this year. That was a huge <laughs> If hit. only we had made the bet about Gray and Gossetto Watchmen apply to global sales. <laughs> mm. Yep, we didn't. Um, lucky me. <laughs> um, also, I thought this was interesting. 50% of PRH's total revenue um, came from on online retailers last year. So okay. as many people are buying books online, they're buying them in, in brick-and-mortar stores. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Um, which I think for the first time is reach parity. I'm not sure. I could be mm -hmm. wrong. And that. it's not all Amazon, because Amazon is what, about like 25%, 27%? I forget the number. I think they're like 60% of, of digital sales is the number mm -hmm. I've heard. But in terms of aggregate sales, I think it's around 30%. Um, okay. I, I could be wrong about that. That's an, I should, we should do every, like every year we should do like a state of the publishing book union. Like here are the 10 facts you should know about where we are in books. Doesn't that be interesting? Like what would go yes. on that list? Like, mm. um, I guess that pew, like some of those pew numbers somehow, yeah. like how many people are actually reading, how the book industry is doing somehow. 
like the print digital audio divide, how libraries are doing, mm-hmm. literacy rates, like something like, you know, sort of the, the state of the book union uh, in North in the U.S. Maybe I'll write that. Does that. Is that interesting? Suddenly I'm interested in that. Yeah, that would be interesting or like an interesting companion to our um, year in review. Yeah. Right. Podcast episode. Yeah, maybe at the end I'll try. It's to... a little wonky. Yeah. So if you, if anyone out there has um, a, a stat or like that either you know or would like to know, that could go in sort of a. I'd like to do you know a ten or twelve, um, uh, you know, uh, steal something from Vox. Right. I'll explain or the state of the book union. <laughs> like, what stats do you think would be relevant um, there? I, I, you know, just just so we can have it because we talk about this enough on hand. I like to just be able to tweet it at people. Right. right. <laughs> Books are dying. I'm like, yep, no. Um, look. <laughs> Yeah, um, actually, kind of like well, the, the Denby thing, right? Well, mm-hmm. where it's like uh, teenagers don't read anymore. It's like actually, um, no. Here we are. Okay, so you're just objectively wrong. Objective, objectively wrong. <laughs> um, related to this, you know, coloring books, man. Hmm. Um. Let's see. Where? Where? Let's see. What's the number here? Yeah. Uh, yeah this was per- specifically about year over year sales for November 2014 yes. against November 2015, and let's see, sales of adult coloring books rose nine and a half percent, and trade paperback sales rose thirty one point four percent. Ebook sales um, down twenty eight percent. News. Board books. Up fifty five point four percent year over year. What the? That's interesting. What is there a run? Was there a baby? Is there a boom? runaway, a runaway bestseller or something? That is a crazy uh, number. That is a crazy number. Uh, for the first eleven months of twenty fifteen, sales in the adult trade segment were up three and a half, or sorry, three point one percent. That's pretty good. Adult to, trade. That I mean, that's good. that's that's like GDP growth. I mean, that's really interesting. Um, uh, but basically, we uh, can attribute a lot of this trade sales gain to the zoom in coloring books, yeah. which I do think feeds into that. We have a reading crisis narrative, mm-hmm. like the top selling books are coloring books, whatever will we do? <laughs> right. Or it was E.L. James and it's young adult. Like it's all of those like things that are selling that didn't really sell before. And it's all the stuff that people like to dismiss and look down on or think is not valid reading. Mm hmm. Well, granted, coloring is not reading, but I'm not worried about coloring books being popular. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, that's coloring books was, I guess that was the big story of the book world in 26, 2015 that wasn't, we didn't see coming, right? Gray and Ghost yeah. of the Watchmen, once we knew we were out there, like, okay, they're going to sell books. Um, but the coloring book craze, I guess it's, you, know, you don't call it a fad till it's over because it could be, you know, just part of book sales now. Like crossword puzzles. Like I'm guessing when crossword puzzles first became a thing, everyone's like, God, crossword puzzles. When is this fad going to be over? <laughs> and it's just now it's just a thing people do, like Sudoku or something like that. So, yeah, if only people would read books instead of making words. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, let's see. What, what should we talk about next? You know, we should probably do our next sponsor. Oh, our next sponsor is uh, Harry's. Uh, Harry's. Yes. You know. It is Harry's. It's Harry's. So basically – Look, I've talked about Harry's before. Shaving is terrible. Uh, and buying blades and razors is even worse. So what what Harry's does is they realized there's no reason to pay $10,000 a blade um, at the pharmacy for, for a razor blade. Let's pay less than that. Let, let's pay a lot less than that. And, and I'm exaggerating, of course. But what Harry's does is quality razor blades and shaving products at about half the price you're going to pay for the brands that you've heard of, 
that's it. That's the, that's the, that's the story. Gets sent right to your house. So, you know, one reason they can, they can um, offer that kind of savings is a, they're not a giant international conglomerate, which needs like huge profit margins to feed the beast. B, they own the German factory that makes the razor blades. They sell it directly, so they don't have to share with CVS or Dwayne Reed or Costco or Target or Amazon or whoever. They don't have to share the, you know, they don't have to give some some of the margin. Um, and B, they don't, you know, have huge ads during the Super Bowl. They do smart stuff like advertise on podcasts and on online and do things like that where they let people know about it. And the product is so good and the value proposition is so compelling that, you know, people tell each other about it. It's like, have you tried, you know, have you tried Harry's? Have you tried one of the, have you tried getting them into your, you know, into your routine of how you take care of yourself? Um, I use Harry's. Uh, it's super easy. One thing that's nice is that since I know the blades are good and also inexpensive, I tend to shave a little bit more. Um, because I, you know, I used to be, I have one of the old, like, um, nitro 2000 hydrogen seven blades or whatever they're called. <laughs> and like, I'd run out of blades and I wouldn't want to go buy anymore. Cause they're, cause they're a thousand dollars. Right. It's like, I'll just use this. One yeah. For I'll just use months. this for a That's while, totally even fine, though it's cutting right? my face and I, and I, and I, and I look like uh, Rorschach from, from Watchmen when I put my towel on my face. But, but since I know that the, the quality is good and I'm not paying a fortune and they come on a steady stream, like they come as I need them, that, you know, I'm shaving more often and I look less like, you know, I might need an intervention than I used to um, a lot of the time. So go to harrys.com and use offer code. And I always do this. I get right it's to book. The, the offer, offer code, code is book. book. Um, and that will get you $5 off your first order. Um, and the, the starter set, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream and three razor blades it's $15 list, but if you use offer code book, it's 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Worth an experiment. I think most of you who try it, um, you know, if, if you're even interested in trying it, it's worth your $10 because it's one of those things. It's a small, small improvement, small upgrade. Michelle and I call that small upgrades. You know, we're just doing <laughs> some. We first coined that when we got a really, we got a new toilet seat. Uh, we're like, <laughs> 40 bucks, small upgrade. It worth <laughs> it. Makes it makes a difference. Makes a difference, you know. Toilet seats, uh, razor blades mattresses, good coffee, and good toilet paper. All Not in having to leave your house or remember when you need a Yeah, there you blades. go. That's the kicker for me. Right, yeah. Is they just show up and then I don't have to remember to put them on the shopping list or go wait for the person to unlock the thing at the store. Yeah. So anyway, thanks so much to Harry's for sponsoring the show. Okay. All right. Okay. Barnes & Noble. Yeah, Barnes and Noble. So we came across this. this tell morning. me, tell, tell, we've talked a lot about Barnes and Noble. Let's do other stuff. And yeah. so interesting. They're going to open a Barnes and Noble store in Scarsdale, New York, in uh, in the mall, in a space that was once a Borders bookstore. So that already is interesting and you know kind of amusing. Um, according to an inside source, it's going to be an upscale store that will include a five star restaurant. Five star, five -star restaurant. Like, on whose scale, first of all? <laughs> well, yeah, we were sort of joking before the show. I was like, I don't think you can just say your restaurant's five stars. Right. You have to have a restaurant first, and then you get the stars. Yeah, then the, the sure. tire makers, the Michelin guys, weirdly Michelin. come in. Michelin. Come in, and they tell you if, you know, if your, uh, your, uh, your, your soup is any good or not. And 
And it says, and that it will also have other features that are appropriate to the area, which reminds me of the Barnes and Noble story that we read a couple weeks ago, that there, it, which was also in upstate New York, I think, mm-hmm. um, that they were going to have wine served in the cafe and like the members of the community were concerned that the Barnes and Noble was going to become a bar mm. <laughs> or something. So they're going into these, you know, upmarket neighborhoods to put in upscale Barnes and Nobles and then assuring people like it's going to have other stuff and all of it's going to be appropriate appropriate to your upscale neighborhood but like does anybody want to i don't does anybody want to go to barnes and noble and then have a five-star meal i'm not sure very Um, odd move it's so weird um why not like bespoke cocktails uh or not a five-star restaurant is scarsdale new york hurting for good restaurants i doubt it so, I don't know. So the the restaurant, it's not just going to be next to or in the same complex in. It, it, it's in the restaurant. Yes. According to an inside source, it will have an upscale store that will include a five-star restaurant. So like... So it, and, it, it includes I mean, a five-star, but also the store will be quote-unquote upscale. Like, yes. I, I don't even know what that... I don't know what more that hard means. Covers, I mean, more the lighting covers. and design is more modern, I guess. You don't have like that and, late 90s design and color palette, you know, that is sort of part of the Barnes & Noble like experience. The, and maybe not like the fluorescent lighting. Yeah, uh, right. Maybe, the, you like, know, the, the music won't be sort of the greatest hits of 1994. Um, <laughs> hey, don't knock. 94 was a good year. Well, I'm just, it's a good year. It's just, I, wouldn't, I don't, it doesn't scream up. Gin blossoms don't scale upscale <laughs> to me. I'm doomed. Uh, And, you know, maybe if they built it, like, it could kind of work the way maybe, like, casino restaurants work, where you can... You can see into well, the restaurant from the casino floor and you can see the casino floor from the restaurant, but they're not just open to each other the way that existing Barnes & Noble cafes are open uh, to the sales mm. floor. So you could try to kind of make them feel like separate entities that just share a doorway or something. But I wonder how they're going to try to sell this as a connected experience. Mm. Like It makes... Well, at least now, maybe it was weird when they started having coffee in the bookstores, but, you know, people's people just think of like, I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble and get a coffee and a book. And there's that like, this is a thing that people do is they go to Barnes and Noble, they get a coffee, they wander around, they look at books or vice versa. But is there a like, honey, what should we do on our date? Tonight, let's go to Barnes and Noble and then sit down for an expensive meal in the Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Uh, And again, these sort of five star epithets and <laughs> it's uh, very like don't worry it's going to be fancy yeah i mean five star if they really mean five star that's expensive like if yes. they uh, that's hundreds of dollars a meal if they're really sitting a michelin five star i think i think they're just using a shorthand for fancy like mm-hmm. I, and i don't know i don't know enough about scarsdale i know it's a, can be, there are very wealthy parts of scarsdale i i don't really know but it's not going to be a cheesecake factory it's going to yes. be, you know, something with a French-sounding name or, you know, a steakhouse or, you know, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. Very strange. We have, like, I can't, it's like Shay, you know, Shay Max or something here in Richmond that I'm envisioning that, like, that's what this is really going right. to be. Like, it's a French restaurant and they just make everything sound fancy, mm-hmm. but, like, your chocolate souffle is going to be frozen in the middle. Nah. It's not, <laughs> it's yeah. not actually a fancy 
experience. I, Can you even have five Michelin stars? I don't even think you can. I think that's I think like, it goes to four. That's like saying, you know, my, my third arm is super, super strong. I, I don't even – anyway, I'm very <laughs> confused about this. Um, I'm going to be super interested to see what it looks like. Like, is he, it's going to be called, called Barnes & Noble. It's not like some mm-hmm. offshoot or a, a one-off or something like that. Um, I'm curious if it's maybe just our bias against leaving our houses it's showing. Like, do listeners, would listeners go to this? Let us know. Would you go eat a fancy Well, we meal? go eat at restaurants. Like, we're well, not shut-ins. <laughs> well, I'm not. Accurate. I mean, all, 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 all appearances uh, to the contrary. <laughs> we do go I like. I will basically only leave my yeah, house Yeah, well, that's what food. I'm saying. It's books and food. Like, that'll get you out of the house. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, and presumably Barnes and Noble is going to run the rest, like it's going to be owned and operated by Barnes and Noble. So they're using, they're thinking of using the restaurants, the way to get in people into bookstore. Like it's very strange. I mean, you know, Barnes and Noble has done some interesting stuff, partnering with different chefs. Like when I was a bookseller, so more than five or six years ago, um, they had dis- we had displays of Mario Batali's cookbooks and cookware in the stores. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if they're going to do something like that. Like we're going to put a Mario Batali restaurant in a Barnes and Noble um, or Bobby Flay or one of those. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I guess like I guess if the thinking might be if it's a really interesting restaurant, we'll get people in and they'll pick up a couple of books on their way out like that i don't see the bookstore driving people to try the restaurant necessarily no. but maybe the other way around well or like are, are you gonna get book recommendations when you order your appetizer <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh yes and you have you're getting the fried calamari oh, and with that i recommend what the old man in the yeah seat. no come on that'd be funny though <laughs> um yeah it's interesting maybe maybe it's a way of subsidizing the rent on the bookstore you know, you're using oh, that's just sort of, I'm not sure, or a, high, a, a, a more wealthy demographic to come into your store man, more regularly. Restaurant, restaurants are a tough business. Yeah, the one, the one tougher business than a bookstore, a restaurant. Right, Sub, subsidize your, if you have to subsidize your bookstore, first of all, you have yeah, a problem. Right, right. And if you're subsidizing it with a restaurant. But at least it's an upscale <laughs> restaurant. Like it's not like a mid-market sort of well, Applebee's it's, it's killer. Well, it's going to be five stars and appropriate to the area. Yeah. Jeff. Well, I mean, if there's five stars, what can you say? You're going to have to go. Maybe they'll just call it five stars. Five stars. <laughs> Actually, if for Barnes and Noble, it should be like a, a four point one stars, <laughs> like digital, like a digital review. Yeah, I got that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see. I explained. I stepped on my own joke. <laughs> okay. Um, but the, I don't even know. I want to say say the, the one of the more interesting book-related studies I've seen in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, Debbie Reese, who runs American Indians in Children's Literature, the blog, um, posted a long um, article, the study done by Julie Stivers, Stivers, who's a graduate student at UNC Chapel Hill uh, School of Library and Information Science. What she did is she looked at children's books um, published since 2013 and specifically looking at the the content around Native American characters. Um, something we've, you know, I followed Debbie on Twitter for, for a while mm-hmm. and really interesting stuff there. She was a guest on Reading Lives. And then also when the rolling new North American stuff was going on, um, a bubbling up of attention and awareness to how Native American characters and Native American culture is treated in literature. Um, and so this one is timely, um, just not only because of topic, but also what she did. So here's the, here's the study. Um, 70 75% books written by non-native authors were set before 1900 
And these are that featured native themes or characters. And we should say there were only 32 board picture and yeah, chapter books right. published since 2013 that fit this bill of featuring Native American main characters. Right. And, and so 75% of these books were, that were written by non-Native authors were set before 1900, compared to only 20% written by Native authors. Um, no books by non-Native authors were set after 1950, whereas 75% of books by Native authors were with two-thirds of books written by Native authors set in the present day. So I think this does connect um, with the conversation we're having about Rowling and the mistakes she made and her blindnesses are about thinking of Native peoples as being not even a relic of the past, because that's just that relics, relics are still around, but sort of mm-hmm. a feature of the past, of an extinct people, of a, of, a, of, a, of a people locked in time, whereas representations by Native authors you know, represent Native people as they are today, um, as they have been more recently. And that's, you know, that's one of the more nuanced ways of thinking about representation and why representation matters. Because if you're a kid and, you know, you only see books about Native American peoples and they're wearing moccasins with bows and arrows and talking about bison and stuff, you're not thinking about how they're represented, what their issues might be. You, You don't even think of them as a living, breathing people and culture that you should give two thoughts about, let alone representing them fairly, right? Representing them right. accurately, fairly. You just don't even know to think about it. Um, so b- blindness and prejudice and representation all here go hand in hand. Um, she linked to the full article. I think it's very interesting. I'm so glad that we posted yeah. this. And um, I, I think this is a really interesting stuff to look at uh, myself. Yeah, this is, it's fascinating. And there's a really nice and information-packed infographic that accompanies it. And it's even worse if you just look at the big five publishers, um, that only 12% of books offered by the big five um, that feature Native American main characters uh, have settings that occur after 1950. And so they find here that to challenge this narrative that Native Americans are people of the past, uh, currently, if you want stories that challenge that narrative, you have to go to independent publishers and utilize Mm -hmm. very specific review sources to find that information. Um, so and I, I agree, this was a really interesting study and an interesting way to frame it, that it's not just about seeing characters of color, and in this case, about seeing Native American characters in stories, but when those stories are set, and the kinds of thematic material that are related to settings really do matter for how readers then yeah. walk away, understanding right. that culture and its meanings. Um, it's, it would be interesting to know, uh, similarly for like children's books about uh, with black main yeah. characters, how many of those are about uh, the Civil War and slavery, mm-hmm. and how many are about black people living their normal black people lives today. Yeah, I think Native Americans in, in North American culture seem to me to be the most frozen in times in terms of, in terms of mainstream cultural imagination. But I'm sure yes. there are, you know, th- that certain stereotypes about all groups will have their own you know, disproportionate representations. And I don't even know what they, you know, think of any of the stereotypes, and I'd imagine that they would be borne out in a study like this. Um, but anyway, thanks so much to, to Debbie for doing that, and good job, Julie. Um, someday, let's say master's, yeah, so not doctor, but um, mm-hmm. well done, well done. Thank you so much for that. And that's our show. That is our yeah. show. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah. It's good to be back. As always, you can find um, show notes to this episode and back as it was a book riot podcast we got a new url for that bookriot.com slash listen you can navigate there to the most recent episode show notes for this show and all of the other podcasts you've got a comment or question for us you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com especially like to know if you could know one book stat um, or what book stat do you think would be 
uh, one or two books that you think would be the you know good bar- uh, barometers for the health of books and reading in North America. I'd certainly like to know that. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks so much to Harry's and Audible's for sponsoring this show. Audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite for a free trial. Harry's.com. Use offer code book at checkout. Get five bucks off. Change your face life with Harry's.com. Change your face Talk life. Talk to you guys next week. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs>